All right. Well, <laughs> it's good to be back in First Peter. I mean, since my shoulder surgery and then our break for Christmas and then Cindy and I flying out to Phoenix to see our new grandson, we haven't been in First Peter uh, since the end of October. That's quite a while. And uh, just to refresh your memory, as we've been studying Peter's first epistle, he opens it by encouraging us to keep our eyes on the coming of the Lord. That will give us the grace we need, the strength from God to endure the trials that we face in this life. He said in verse 1 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That salvation is talking about the redemption of our physical bodies, which will happen at the rapture. And then as we came to verse 13 of chapter 1, we saw the word therefore. And uh, that meant that Peter was now going to make application to our lives from the spiritual truth he has just gotten done talking about. So in verse 13 we read, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Now, when Peter commanded us to gird up the loins of our minds and be sober, he was saying that we are not to put ourselves under the influence of anything, anything, the God of this world, the devil, will try to use to intoxicate us with. When you're under the influence of alcohol, it works on your brain chemistry. It dulls your senses, lowers your resistance to things, in essence, now, you're under the control of that thing. Satan wants to control our minds. In fact, he did it for all the years before we got saved. The Bible says spiritual warfare really begins and takes uh, its most prevalent form as a battle for control of our thinking. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1, Do not be conformed to this world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? By being in the Word of God. Because the Word of God cleanses our thinking from all the defilement that Satan pumped into us for all the years before we got saved. All the filthy junk and, and all the things he used to influence, or in other words, control us through. Peter says, look, you've been delivered from that way of life. You're no longer under the control of the devil. He will still try to use uh, things in this world because he's the God of this world. And as John said, everything in the world, everything controlled by the devil is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These things are of the devil, he said, not of the Father. And the devil will try to use these things, all the things in the world, uh, to control us still. It's kind of like being intoxicated. A Satan uses a lot of things that kind of dull our senses, uh, lower our resistance, and put us under the control of whatever it is. And he's got all kinds of temptations out there that he uses. Some of them, like physical alcohol or drugs, but uh, there's many other things, lusting for things and people and all kinds of things. And, and the idea is he wants to keep us, uh, get us to, to walk away from the new life and get us back into the old life again, where 
We were slaves of his and he controlled us. And Peter tells us that God has redeemed us out of that old life. And as such, we are now to live a new life, a holy life for the Lord. Peter goes on to say that we died to the old life when we received the gospel and were born of the Spirit, born again. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit, he's talking about how you received the gospel. You were cleansed of your sins, okay? Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And now having talked about how we have been, have been born again, or in other words, we are, have been made new creations in Christ. Peter goes on to start out chapter 2 uh, with the word therefore, which means Peter is once again going to make application to our lives based on the things he has just gotten done teaching us or talking about. In other words, now that we are born of the Spirit, we are new creations in Christ, we must live that reality out in our daily lives. This is something that is so, that's what being holy is all about, by the way, is drawing close to God and, and uh, basically uh, laying yourself on the altar of sacrifice every day, saying, Lord, today, take me, use me, I belong to you, I want to live to bless and honor and glorify you. That's what it means to be set apart from the world, holy to the Lord. And Peter says, you know, once you've been born again, holy living doesn't come naturally. You still have to fight with the flesh, but you have the Spirit of God inside of you now to give you the victory if you will look to Him, right? But you definitely don't want to be looking into the world and messing around with the same junk you did when you were in the world because it'll control you. A lot of Christians are in bondage to things that God had delivered them from when they first got saved, but they didn't stay close to the Lord. They didn't keep walking in a holy way with him and so they slowly began to drift back into the world and as they did the devil began to retake territory and today they are in bondage to alcohol again or drugs of some kind or pornography or something else now they haven't lost their salvation but they definitely lost their victory and their witness right so Peter now wants to get into chapter two basically chapter one has been uh, doctrinal chapter two becomes practical so verse 1, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Let me stop there. Peter has just gotten done once again telling us that we are no, no longer the people we once were. We are now children of God. And as children of God, well, we are to imitate, Paul said, our heavenly Father. God is love. Therefore, we must walk in love, especially toward the brethren, is the idea. Remember in verse 22, he said, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Since you're born again, now you're children of God. God is love. Therefore, he wants us to walk in love first and foremost toward the body of Christ. In fact, John said, if we say we love God and don't love the brethren, we're deceiving ourselves. Not that every Christian we come in contact with, we're going to be just head over heels crazy about. Uh, you know, that's, but that's part of it. We have to really lay ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I'm having a problem with this person. I know they love you. I know they belong to you. I'm having a problem with them. Give me grace. I need grace to, to love them. I need your love to do it with. And that's legitimate. That's a legitimate prayer. So, you know, we are to love each other as Christians, but the opposite of loving one another 
would be the list that Peter just has gotten done listing for us. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, again, he's going to apply this from what he's just gotten done saying. He says, laying aside. Laying aside. Therefore, laying aside. Uh, it's a command in the Greek. And uh, it's a term that was often used of stripping off soiled or filthy garments. The first thing we need to strip from our lives is malice, Peter said. Malice means wickedness in general. The Greek word overall means wickedness in general. But in particular, it carries with it the idea of harboring evil thoughts against another person. One author put it this way, said, Malice nourishes antagonism, builds up grudges, and secretly hopes that revenge, harm, or tragedy will overtake another, end quote. Well, certainly Christians don't ever have those thoughts. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's not always the case. I mean, the world, they, they revel in stuff like that, malice. Um, but even as children of God, we can fall into that. Peter says it must not be. It must not be a part of the new life. Strip it away like a filthy garment. He next mentions deceit. Deceit is any form of dishonesty, trickery, or treachery that a person might use to take advantage of another and defraud them out of something that belongs to them. As someone has explained it, deceit falsifies income tax returns, cheats on exams, lies about age, bribes officials, and pulls shady deals in business, end quote. It was actually a fishing term, this word that's translated deceit. Uh, in the Greek, it's a word that literally means to bait the hook. Uh, it's interesting. Peter was a fisherman, so he kind of liked those fishing metaphors. But to bait the hook, uh, the idea being to use flattery and dishonesty to bait and hook a gullible person and then reel them in. In other words, take advantage of them. The next thing Peter says we must, by God's grace, strip away from our lives like a filthy garment is hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, guys, is another form of deceit. But uh, it's a kind of deceit that pretends to be someone you're not. It actually originated in the theater. It was a word that came out of the theater and uh, was used of an actor. And back in those days, on stage, they would have masks on sticks. And they would hold the mask up to their face as they were playing a part, pretending to be someone they weren't. This became a word that was used then in general for anyone who was playing a part. In fact, the word became synonymous with insincerity, pretense, and phoniness. As someone has said, and I quote, the hypocrite is a play actor, pretending to be someone he's not. He pretends to be happily married when his home is actually a battlefield. He pretends to be spiritual on Sundays, but he's as carnal as a goat throughout the week. He pretends interest in others, but his motives are selfish, end quote. Well, the next evil vice that, uh, you know, must be eliminated from a Christian's life is envy. Now, envy is not the same as jealousy, uh, even though many believe they are synonymous. They are not technically synonymous. Jealousy is a word that means guarding and protecting what belongs to you, not wanting anyone to take that thing or that person from you, like, we'll say, your spouse. And that's the way the word is used primarily in the Bible, and I'm thinking of the Old Testament. When God married Israel, and Israel was unfaithful to him by going after other gods, remember how God said that he was a jealous God, and he wouldn't stand for their unfaithfulness. You see, he had entered into a marriage covenant with Israel, 
And as such, it was built on mutual trust and fidelity. Of course, God would never betray them. The problem was them betraying God. Now, jealousy, guys, in and of itself, and we've talked about this, is not a sin. Now, certainly, human jealousy can lead to all kinds of evil things and sins and so on, violence. But when God says that I'm a jealous God, and this is interesting to me, because uh, Oprah Winfrey was in the news the last day or so. Uh, she gave a little speech at some awards thing. I can't keep up with them all. Hollywood keeps giving itself awards banquets, and, you know, there's like you know, a, a thousand of them a year, I guess, or something like that. Anyway, she got up there at one point to receive some kind of award, and she made a speech, and uh, everyone was talking about how she needs to run for president. She's, you know, a remarkable woman, and she is a pretty remarkable gal. In fact, I was asked on Biblical Insight, our live call and radio show Friday, what I would think of uh, a President Oprah Winfrey. And I said, well, if Oprah was a godly woman, I'd be her biggest fan. But the problem is we don't need another secular person in the White House. Now, I believe our president is unsaved or possibly has just recently received Christ. We've gotten some interesting uh, reports from the guys around him that he might have received Christ, that he might just be a young believer. We don't know. But I remember what Oprah, I remember reading about Oprah Winfrey when she was a little girl. She used to be uh, very uh, committed to reading her Bible. She, you know, as, as a young uh, girl, she was very much into the Bible. She would read it all the time until she came across the passage which God said, I'm a jealous God. In her mind, she said, well, jealousy is a sin. Therefore, God can't be a good God if he says, I'm a jealous God, and she walked away from her faith. What have been wise to maybe try to get come in contact with a spiritual leader, a pastor of some kind, to bounce that question off of that person instead of just drawing your own conclusions and walking away when you're just a young uh, girl. It's a big question to, to wrestle with, right? What she didn't understand is that jealousy is not a sin. When God said, I'm a jealous God, talking to Israel, he was talking about how he had married them, and he had every right to be zealous for them, and jealous in the sense he didn't want to share them with any other gods, is the idea. Just like, I don't want to be sharing my wife with any other man. She would never do that, but I'm jealous for her. And the jealousy is because I know how I feel about her. I know how much I love and care for her, and I don't want anybody else coming between us that might do harm to her in some way. But envy is different. Envy is not jealousy. Envy, on the other hand, is begrudging some, uh, something another person has, which often leads then to coveting. Okay, you envy that. You begrudge what they have. You begin to lust after what they have, and finally it leads to stealing what they have. A lot of these sins are intertwined. They, they all work together. Vine's Expository Bible Dictionary defines this word, envy, as, and I quote, the feeling of displeasure produced by observing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. It often then leads to grudges, bitterness, hatred, and even murder, even murder. It was envy, if you remember, that caused the chief priests to deliver up Jesus to Pilate for death, Matthew 27, verse 18. One author explains it this way, said, and I quote, Envy is still a killer. Women can look daggers at others because of their better homes and gardens, smarter clothes, or superior cooking. A man can praise another fellow's new car or speedboat, but what he is thinking is, I'll show him I'll get something even better, end quote. That's uh, envy. And lastly on the list, Peter mentions, and put away all evil speaking, which refers primarily 
to defamation of character, which is the tearing down of another person. Again, one author put it this way, said, evil speaking or slander consists of backbiting, malicious gossip, recrimination, and so on. Slander is the attempt to make oneself look cleaner by slinging mud at someone else. It may take very subtle forms such as, yes, she is a lovely person, but she has this one failing, dot, dot, dot. And then the knife is deftly thrust into her back. Or it may even have a religious pose. Uh, I mention this only for your prayer fellowship. But did you know that he fill in the bank? And then the character is assassinated. So evil speaking takes all kinds of different forms. We would call it gossip, slander. The problem is we're smart enough spiritually to not make ourselves look carnal. So we tend to take these things and wrap them in spiritual sounding phrases like the author points out, oh, I'm not gossiping, I'm just sharing a prayer request. When in reality, we're just ripping a person apart and they're not there to defend themselves. I mean, we are making them in our own image. We are, we are making them to be anything we want them to be as we share this creation we've made of what they are not. We share it with others and we run down their character, their, uh, their personality, and so on. Uh, very evil. Now, Peter is warning us, guys, that if we don't strip away these carnal and uh, evil attitudes from our hearts and lives, listen, they will hinder our appetite. And remember, it's all about the Word of God he's talking about, right? That if we don't strip these evil things from our lives as Christians, they will hinder our appetite for God's Word and stunt our spiritual development. Uh, one pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, the degree to which those attributes exist in our lives will be the degree to which our hunger for the word will be diminished. He said, no matter how good the meal my wife Tammy prepares for me, if I stop off at McDonald's on the way home and score a couple of quarter pounders with large fries and supersize the whole deal when I get home, I won't be interested in what she's made. When people stop reading or studying the Word, it's because they're eating the junk food of this world. That's why Peter says, first lay aside the junk, and then you will desire the milk of the Word, end quote. So again, verse 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And so, guys, in verse 1, we are commanded to forsake the negative, And in verse 2, we are then commanded to embrace the positive. And here, Peter likens a newborn physical baby, which naturally craves milk. I mean, <laughs> you've all seen newborn children. I mean, uh, nobody has to tell them to crave milk. They naturally crave milk. That's something God has placed in them because as they drink the milk, uh, they grow. And Peter says, you know, that's an apt description of spiritual babes in Christ. They need to crave the pure milk of God's word, which will cause uh, them to grow spiritually and be in good health. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, one of my favorite commentators, he said, and I quote, old uh, Southern guy, said, I quote, my friend, without a hunger for the word of God, you will not grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. You will not develop as a Christian. You will always be in your babyhood. We must remember that a little baby and a full-grown man are both human beings, but are in different stages of growth and development. The little one needs milk so he or she can grow up to become a man or a woman. 
Now, how does a Christian grow? He grows by studying the Word of God. There is no growth apart from the Word of God. End quote. I mean, just no way around it. Seems basic to us, but you'd be shocked at how many churches are teaching everything but God's Word. Oh, they give it lip service. Uh, but uh, most of the time, in, in a lot of churches, not all, of course, but uh, they're teaching the latest bestseller. Uh, they're, 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 you know, they're involved in all kinds of things that are not... I just saw somebody just sent me a, a picture of a group of women uh, in a church somewhere and something to the effect uh, as they were all posing for this picture, all pumped up, a picture promoting Christian yoga. Christian yoga. So a lot of churches into things like teaching of yoga, which is interesting. You, you can't say Christian yoga any, any more than you can say Christian Satanism or Christian communism. They're mutually exclusive terms. I mean, yoga, and I don't want to get sidetracked, yoga is a word that means a yoke with Brahman, the Hindu god. Oh, but I just do it for the exercise. Well, I've read some interesting statements by Tibetan monks, and they said, look, we, we invented it. And we're telling you that we invented each of these poses and exercises to help you reach kind of an altered state of consciousness where you yoke with Brahman. And I believe, really, you know, that kind of gets into what Peter is saying, because I believe that in calling God's word uh, pure milk, Peter no doubt has in mind the false teachers in the church that were feeding God's people on the poison milk of false doctrine. Now, he mentions them clearly in his second epistle. If you turn to chapter 2, 2 Peter 2, starting with verse 1, Peter says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So Peter is saying there were false prophets among God's people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among God's people in the New Testament or the church age, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These are teachings that will damn a person to hell if embraced. And even denying, they'll bring in these destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and the destruction does not slumber. Guys, false prophets and teachers have plagued God's people from the very beginning in both the Old and the New Testaments. Of course, <laughs> false teachers wouldn't be around if there wasn't a market for them. I mean, if people didn't want their ears tickled, if they didn't want to hear all these carnal doctrines these people are teaching, doctrines that are designed to stimulate the flesh, promise you all kinds of earthly blessings and all kinds of prosperity and success, and you'll have the nicest house in the neighborhood, drive the nicest car, and so on. Uh, these things appeal to the flesh. And... Um, there wouldn't be a market for false prophets if there weren't so many people in the church that still are very carnally minded. But Jesus and the New Testament writers warned us about these people, these false prophets, teachers, and so on, and said that their numbers would escalate the closer we got to the Lord's return. Turn to Matthew 24. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to kind of pay attention to how many times Jesus and the apostles talked about and warned us about false teachers or false prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that they were like spiritual traffic cops 
waving people down the broad way that leads to destruction, all the while claiming to represent God. But in Matthew 24, Jesus is now on the Mount of Olives, where he has uh, gone to after he has confronted the Pharisees in the temple and uh, pronounced uh, condemnation upon them, judgment, and uh, the whole city of Jerusalem, for that matter. So he leaves the city, uh, walks over the uh, bridge that led uh, across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, where he sits down, and his disciples came to him privately, it says, in verse 3. And it says, they said to him, tell us, uh, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now he's talked about not one stone was going to be left upon another till everything was tossed down. In other words, the temple was completely destroyed. That really took them uh, aback. And they want to know, well, uh, when will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Your King James, if you're reading out of a King James, says, and the end of the world. It's not, it's not correct. It's the end of the age. They were wondering, the Jews had said that from the time Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we entered into an evil age of man's rebellion. And they were looking for a Messiah to come to establish a kingdom on the earth of righteousness where the world would enter into a new age, an age of righteousness. And they were looking for that. Every Jew was waiting for it. In fact, that's what kept them going all the years uh, that they were persecuted and so on. They were waiting for a Messiah who would deliver them. So they come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, you're talking about some pretty serious things. The temple being destroyed, you're going away. And when are you going to return and establish the kingdom basically is what's on their mind. And Jesus answered them in verse 4 and said to them, Take heed that no one, what? Deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. You know, guys, if you were to ask, well, the average Christian, because the world doesn't really study end times prophecy for the most part. But if you were to ask the average Christian today, what are going to be the signs of the last days in Jesus' return? They would no doubt tell you there's going to be wars uh, and rumors of wars, famine, pestilences, and things like that. And, and that's true. But what Jesus said would be the, the one thing that would dominate everything else would be deception, spiritual deception, that there was going to be a proliferation of false prophets and teachers who would come on the scene, especially right... They've always been around, as we just said. But I'm talking about in the years just prior to the Lord's return, how they were going to escalate these characters. They were going to come into the church in great numbers. And they would deceive multitudes, Jesus and the other apostles said, uh, with their false doctrines. Now, Paul the apostle warned uh, about them infiltrating and infesting the church in 2 Timothy 4, if you turn there. These are familiar scriptures, but we need to kind of tie them together. And I want you to remember that Paul is talking about what's going to happen in the church in the last days. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, the Greek phrase for translated sound doctrine literally means healthy teaching. It's the same Greek word we get our word hygienic from. Healthy teaching. Of course, all teaching from God's Word, the pure Word of God, is always healthy and will always lead to spiritual growth and spiritual health. He's talking here about people in the church. There's coming a time when 
people in the church who profess to be Christians will no longer tolerate or desire healthy teaching from God's word, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, Paul told Timothy, who he's writing to, he told him just before these verses, and remember, Timothy was a young pastor, and Paul admonished him to protect his people from false teaching. How? Well, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, he said, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Guys, the only way we can guard ourselves against the devil's lies is to know the truth of God. Or as Peter put it, that we constantly desire and feed upon the pure milk of God's word. I won't have you turn to these. You can write the reference down. But remember what Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 2. Jesus, it says, said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The Greek word means truly. You're truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What's he talking about? I believe he's talking primarily about free from false teaching. Free from false teaching. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You're going to know the truth. The truth will protect you from the devil's lies. Also in 1 Timothy 4, 16, Paul said, Take heed, Timothy, to yourself and to the doctrine, the word of God. Continue in them. Listen, for in so doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Well, he's not saying you're going to save yourself from hell, Timothy. Timothy was already a believer. He's a pastor. He's saying, Timothy, if you faithfully teach God's truth, you will protect yourself and your people from the devil's lies, from false doctrine. Now, guys, after Peter commands us to feed faithfully on God's word, he then says in verse 3 of 1 Peter 2, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In saying this, Peter seems to, to have in mind what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, verse 8, where the psalmist said, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, just so you understand, the word if there in verse 3, okay, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, the word if in verse 3 should be translated since. It's not a conditional clause. In other words, Peter is saying that since we've already tasted how good the Lord is, and how did that first happen? We tasted the word of God through the gospel. And what happened? We received the gospel, and we got saved. He talks about that, having been purified, all right, uh, born again. That was the first time we tasted how good God was, and that he saved me as a sinner simply by believing his word in what Jesus did. And then, of course, as we went on from that point, Every day that we have uh, read the word and fed on the word and applied the word, we have continued to see how good God is, how faithful he is. He always keeps his promises, right? I mean, he's, he's a God that when he makes a promise, he will keep it. We just need to trust him and not waver and doubt. And Peter is saying, look, since you've already tasted how good the Lord is, as you have read and applied uh, the word of God, don't you want to continue tasting and seeing how good the Lord is? In the future, I mean, don't you want every day? He's he, he saying, look, you should every day want to continue in God's work. 
Continue feeding on the word of God. Because, and I'm going to paraphrase, you have no idea the blessings that God has in store for you as you continue to walk with him, draw close with him, be in the word, feed on it. I mean, wow. It's uh, something that is absolutely incredible that we every day see the goodness of God. One pastor, though, sums up this section now. He said, uh, Peter's simple analogy comparing a newborn baby craving for its mother's milk with a believer of any maturity level passionately longing for the word of God concludes the apostles' series of exhortations that began in chapter 1, verse 13. First, as a result of their salvation, Christians are to respond to God by pursuing holiness. That was chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Second, believers must respond to others in the church by loving them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And finally, believers must respond to their essential need for the word by continuing and desiring it. That was chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Just to kind of sum up that section, okay? Now, he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, coming to him as to a living stone. And verse 2, Peter says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And then he follows it up in verse 4 by saying, coming to him. And guys, this reminds us that coming to Jesus and feeding upon his word are one and the same. Coming to Jesus and feeding upon his word are one and the same. Uh, you remember, you, why don't you turn there, Hebrews 4. Now in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12, uh, there's a, uh, a verse that I think most of us have memorized. And of course, it's about the Word of God, right? And it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any, any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I'm not going to get into that and explain it. You can go online and get our Hebrew study and check it out for yourself. But you're, you're reading that going, well, that's, wow, the Word of God is powerful, right? Living, right? Like a sharp two-edged sword. But then verse 13, verse 13, he says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, okay? But all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. So he's really talking about Jesus. Well, can we not apply verse 12 as the word, though? Sure. That's the point. They're interchangeable. You have in your lap tonight Jesus Christ in print. The volume of the book it is written of me, he said. So you want to draw close to Jesus? You want to know his heart? Get in the Word. Stay in the Word. As you do, you will draw close to the Lord, and He will begin to live His life through you, because, you know what, how can a young man cleanse his way, the psalmist asked, by taking heed according to your Word. I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The idea is when you hide God's Word in your heart, then you give something for the Holy Spirit to have to energize that truth in your life. The Holy Spirit is not going to, probably, He can do anything, but he's probably not going to uh, give victory and fruitfulness in your life if you don't know the Word of God. Because that's the idea. We feed on the Word, and God gives us promises and principles by which if we hide in our heart, it gives the Holy Spirit things to then energize truths that he energizes that he uses then to bring victory and fruitfulness into our lives. Very important. But um, Jesus and his Word, interchangeable. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, again, coming to him as to a living stone, 
rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now remember, Peter was writing to people who were being persecuted, Christians, who were having a rough time. That's why he told them in chapter 1, keep your eyes on the Lord. He's coming soon. Keep your eyes on him. It'll give you strength to know that, look, this life is only temporary. It'll be over soon. And the Lord is coming. And I'm going to enter into glory unspeakable. Uh, wow. Uh, just a whole different existence where there'll be no more tears, nor sorrow, nor sickness, nor pain, nor death, and so on. So keep your eyes on the Lord's coming. Uh, it'll give you strength to endure the trials of the moment. But uh, when Peter says, look, uh, you know, coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Yes, Jesus is the stone. He goes on to talk about uh, the stone uh, that uh, was rejected. It became a stumbling stone. We'll talk about that more next time. But Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, precious, of course, to the Father, but he was rejected. He came, came to his own but his own did not receive him, John said in his first, in his gospel, chapter 1. He came unto his own, but his own, the Jewish people, did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. But when we become followers of Christ, well, everything that Jesus had to endure, and of course we don't probably are not going to endure physical crucifixion, but we endure spiritual death to ourselves, crucified with Christ, and so on. But as we follow Christ, we become his disciples, of course. And everything he endured, well, that's probably the things that we're going to have to endure to some degree. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, again, the night before the cross. This was the final discourse he gave to them before the cross. He said in John 15, verses 18 to 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Those that belong to the world, the world loves. Why? Because they think like the world, they talk like the world, have the same attitudes and things of the world. As we become Christians, we become new creations, as we said. Old things have passed away, all things become new. We have new desires, new convictions, new passions. We're living according to a whole different world view. And, of course, that makes us stand out as being different, and the world will attack. But Jesus says, don't worry about that. Rejoice. He said in Matthew 5, uh, rejoice because it proves you belong to me. Because the world also hated and persecuted the false prophets. Excuse me, the, the true prophets who were before you. Okay? But um, he said, look, if you were of the world, the world would love you. The world loves its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, the world hates you, you know you're on the right team then, okay? Back in 1 Peter 2, again, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Now, let me just stop there and get into a little thing for a few minutes that I think is very important. I'm sure you already know this, but... I want to put you in remembrance of this because it's so important. It reminds us of what Paul said in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 20, if you turn there. Because Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 20. 
He said, having been built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now he's talking about the temple of God or the body of Christ, the church, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and later on the temple were considered the house of God, the house of God. It's where God dwelt and where he and man met for the purpose of fellowship through the animal sacrifices. And yet in Acts 7, verse 48, Stephen said, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And then he quotes Solomon. When Solomon dedicated this newly built temple for the Lord, this new house, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world, absolutely magnificent to look at, uh, as you read the account, even in Scripture, it's just amazing. But Stephen says that, as he's quoting Solomon, when he dedicated the new temple in Jerusalem, uh, he quotes from 1 Kings 8.27, which says, Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? So he's dedicating the temple. It's a magnificent structure. And he says, But Lord, we're under no delusion that you're going to dwell in this house and the heavens can't contain you you're you're infinite I mean, you're going to put your presence here but it's not going to be your fullness we know that the heavens are your throne the earth is your footstool and so on so what solomon is saying is as glorious and magnificent as his temple that he built for the lord was it was nothing more than a building made out of mortar and stone basically would stephen acknowledge that the most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. So that begs the question, well, where does God dwell? If he doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands, where does he dwell? Well, the New Testament tells us very clearly he dwells in our hearts as believers and in the temple of his church. In fact, in Ephesians 2, verse 21, we read, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about the church now, made up of individual believers, as Peter called them, living stones. In 1 Corinthians 3, I want you to turn there, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, in other words, if anyone defiles the body of Christ or the corporate church is the idea, Paul said, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Again, J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote the church, the body of Christ is a habitation, a permanent temple of God in the spirit. When believers come together in a building to worship, the Holy Spirit is present. In that sense, God is in that building. But when every believer has left the building, God has left it also. God is not in any church building any more than he is in any bar room. Today, God indwells believers, not buildings. We have previously stated that God has never dwelt in any building made with hands. And it is a pagan philosophy which places God in a handmade structure, end quote. And what uh, McGee is talking about is that it was uh, very common in uh, paganism to associate the gods with temples. That's why they all built temples for various gods, because that became the God's house, that's where the God dwelt, and uh, this was their mindset, that they had to go to a location, into a building, to worship 
their god, Zeus, Apollo, whoever uh, they worshipped. And McGee is rightly pointing out that, look, whenever a Christian thinks that they can only meet with God in a cathedral or in some kind of other church structure, whether they realize it or not, they are thinking more like a pagan than a Christian. It's just not biblical to think, you know, this idea, well, I have to get to church. I got to meet with God. God's inside of you. Get alone somewhere if you want to talk to the Lord and just have quiet and bring your heart to him. He's inside of you. You're, you're his house, okay? He lives inside of you. Now, look, I'm going to say something that if you take it to heart, guys, and I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to say something that if you take it to heart and apply it into your life, it will radically change your life for God. What is it? Well, do you realize that as Christians, you and I, we are living, breathing, holy of holies. We are living, breathing, holy of holies. And everywhere you go, and any place you stand becomes holy ground. Think about that. I mean, many people will never set foot in a church building, but that's okay, because the building isn't the church anyways. You are the church in whom God dwells, and you can take the church to them. That's what we're supposed to do. The world is not going to, probably not many unbelievers, some, but most people in the world will not come to church. So we, as the church, take God to them. That's the whole idea of living a holy life and, uh, and being a light in this world and so on. But sometimes I think we forget this truth. I mean, we, we understand it, we comprehend it, but we don't fully walk in that truth every day. We take it for granted or we just forget about it. But we don't realize often how awesome a responsibility this really is. Uh, that as the temple of God, and in particular, the Holy of Holies. What was, the, what was the Holy of Holies? It was the place where God's presence dwelt. Well, if God lives in me, then I'm the temple, and primarily, I'm the Holy of Holies in the New Covenant, all right? And uh, wherever you go, you bring God's presence to people. That's why it's so important that you take uh, seriously your responsibility to represent God faithfully in the world. Because often people know we're Christians. We, you know, we'll share we're Christians, or they see us with a Bible or uh, a fish on our car or something like that. And they figure it out pretty quick. We're not swearing. We're not entering into the office gossip, hopefully. And so they, they, they learn quickly we're not like them. We're different. So they'll ask us maybe, well, are, you, are you a Christian? Sure. Yeah, I am. Now it's on record that you are a Christian. And they're going to be studying you, believe me, when I tell you this. I mean, I have heard... I can't tell you how many um, testimonies from people who got, had gotten saved who said, you know, when I found out so-and-so was a Christian, I studied their life. I wanted to see if they really lived what they claimed to believe. And, of course, the ones that got saved, the person they were studying was a good man or woman of God and really did uh, live for the Lord, right? Um, but I can, your, work, your work is church. Oh, not my work. Well, no. But you bring church there because you are the church. And make it a holy environment, at least as far as you can make it for yourself and, and how you treat others. So Paul says, you know, this is an awesome responsibility. He said in Ephesians 4 verse 1, uh, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 
because we have this awesome responsibility as the temple of God. Once again, in Ephesians 2.21, he says, In whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Talking about the church once again. To accomplish this, you know, knitting the whole church, joining the people in the church together and building a temple of God. To accomplish this, God takes dead lives and by his grace turns them into living stones. That's what Peter's talking about, right? How you were redeemed. How you were born again of the Spirit through the Word of God, right? Now you're living stones. You are the temple of God. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, as living stones, you're being built up uh, a spiritual house. Look, Peter says, and Paul also said, the Holy Spirit takes these living stones. What are we talking about? Again, you and I. And he carefully and skillfully fits them together in the temple of God, which is the church or the body of Christ. Paul said this in numerous places that we each have certain giftings and callings and God places us in the body in certain places that the body when everyone does its share or uses its gifts well not only does the church grow strong but it becomes effective in doing the work of God in this world. It was a sad day for the church when uh, a model of Christianity was invented which says look uh the church is the place where all the evangelism should take place all the seeker sensitive teachings and and philosophy of ministry i understand where they're coming from i know they had good intentions but it was a sad day when they communicated to people you bring your friends and family into church because this is really where the uh, evangelism takes place now we've talked about you bring a people in the church that want to know more about god letting them see your changed lives and so on that's legitimate But no time did I ever say to you that this is only the place uh, where evangelism takes place because only the professionals, the pastoral staff, are qualified to save people. I would never say that. And when well-intentioned pastors and ministers communicated that to people, well, it removed the dynamic of them being a witness in the world, that God is wanting to use them, that God is... Uh, has gifted them with certain gifts and callings. And if they will work together, because this church is not the result of any one person. I mean, every one of you has gifts that you use in this church to make this a reality. I couldn't do everything uh, myself or the pastor. We, We couldn't do it all. We need each other. And Paul says, look, even those people who have what we would call minor giftings, are some of the most important in the body of Christ. So Paul says, look, don't look down on each other. Build each other up. Work together. Working together to, to use your gifts as God has fit you, the Holy Spirit fit you into the, into the temple of God. You're building us up, using us as living stones. Um, we want the world to see a healthy church. If the world does come to visit us, we want the world to see or unsaved people to see that, you know what? We're not a perfect church, but we certainly love the Lord and obey what he has said. And he has transformed our lives and is continuing to transform our lives out of certain uh, bondages uh, and and into freedom and so on. But um, in Ephesians 4.16, again, Paul said, verse 16, he said, um, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly, and each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts to grow. 
so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And, and you know, just to say this in, in quickly, Paul said, I think in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, look, when people fight for a certain position, everyone wants to be a mouth or this or that. Well, then, you know, you have a situation where the body becomes spastic in a sense. It can't function the way God designed it. It won't be effective. There's a lot of handicapped churches, if I could put it that way, where uh, there's so much fighting and things, power struggles, that when an unbeliever does come in, they don't see a church that is healthy and functioning properly. A true church, the church of Jesus Christ, the way he wants it to be, a good church, is where the Holy Spirit is fitting people into the body and they accept those roles. They're not fighting for um, somebody else's ministry. They're just accepting what God has called them to do. They're doing it with joy. And as they do, the body is healthy and it, it uh, grows and it's full of love. And, and guys, the unique feature of this temple that Paul talks about, Peter talks about, unlike a building made of bricks and mortar, this temple, what? It grows. It grows because it's made up of living stones, as Peter said. Uh, living stones, listen, that declare the living truth of God to all we come in contact with through our lives and by our words. Again, guys, the greatest testimony that we as the people of God can give to this world to prove the existence of our God, our great God, is the testimony of a changed life. That's why Paul said, you're my living epistles. He said to the folks he had uh, ministered to and, and, and brought the gospel to, he said, I don't need letters of recommendation. In those days, when you went to speak somewhere, if you didn't have letters of recommendations from other uh, places, they wouldn't even give you the time of day. And Paul's critics were going around saying, you know, Paul's not... Where's his letters of recommendation? Where are his letters from people uh, confirming his ministry? Paul says, I don't need letters of recommendation from men. You're my letters of recommendation. You want to know if my ministry is effective? Look at your life. You're living epistles. And everywhere you go, you're, you're declaring that God's word is true. Jesus is real because he's changed your life. You're transformed is the idea. Again, the world can argue with our theology. They can't argue with the reality of a changed life. You know, Harry Ironside, who was a great man of God, with the Lord now, of course, was confronted one day. He was uh, in a meeting where he was preaching the word, and he was confronted by an atheist who wandered in somehow, or maybe probably knew Ironside was going to be there, knew he was a Christian preacher. So this atheist wandered into the meeting, and at one point he stood up and interrupted the meeting, basically. He tried to argue with Ironside uh, against the truthfulness of God's word, while holding up the virtues of atheism uh, as the only hope for the human race. Ironside made the man a challenge. He said, and I'm quoting him, next week, you come to our meeting with 100 men whose lives have been radically transformed from drunkenness, sexual sin, and crime to lives of virtue and morality by the doctrines of atheism, and I will produce a hundred men whose lives have been radically transformed from sin to righteousness by the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. Ironside said the man never showed up the next week. Of course he didn't show up. There is nothing that can transform a life other than God's word and the power of the Spirit. And so verse 5, he said, you, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that not only are we, as the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of God, 
We are also the priests who offer spiritual sacrifices to him, which are acceptable through Jesus Christ. So we're the temple, and we're also the priesthood. Now, next week, God willing, we will look at that a little deeper. Because as spiritual priests, we need to understand what the sacrifices are that we offer up to God. Because it's very important as we serve him and so on. So uh, next week, we will continue on uh, in uh, chapter 2. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. Your word has power. And if we will read it and apply it, the Spirit will energize it. And it will bring forth fruit. And we will be effective, Lord, as lights in this dark world as we share the truth of our Savior with the lost, that, Lord, you would open their eyes and save them. So we ask you, Lord, to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.